Let's ask God's blessing. Dear Lord, we are thankful for each other, thankful for the work of your Holy Spirit in us that draws us together, desire to have opportunities to love one another in spite of the worldly differences that we enjoy. We ask that your work would be completed in us through looking more at your word, trying to understand all that your prophets and apostles have said. In your son's name, amen. We're in Job. Job, potentially, the earliest book written in the Bible. There's there's debate about it, of course, but Job uh, is a non-Hebrew work. Uh, It doesn't involve Hebrew people. And uh, seems to occur post the early patriarchal time. So you're looking at uh, the time of Esau and later there's one of the characters, Eliphaz the Temanite. And Teman is one of the descendants of Esau. But they're not mainstream Jewish or Jewish at all. Um, And of course, the books of Moses, depending on your view of Genesis, whether or not it was documents that Moses copied or whether Moses uh, was inspired directly to write it. um, The book of Job has has a unique standing in how early it is and how literarily wonderful it is. You'll still study the book of Job in world literature classes because it's one of these great poems of human dynamics, kind of like Gilgamesh is. Gilgamesh on mortality and, uh, and Job on why bad things happen to good people. But wonderful, wonderful writing. Now the structure of the book since we're not going through the whole book, is that, as you know, a really good guy named Job um, was living a good life on the fat of the land and caring for his workmen and his kids and his God. Satan and God get together. God brags about Job. Satan says, that's because everything's good for him. So a little contest over whether or not that's true. Satan starts to take things away. Then you step in, the calamity falls on Job, and then you move the scene in the heavenlies where God and Satan are talking together, stops, and you get down on the ground, and Job is there in, with his boils and his dead kids, and is sitting on an ash heap scraping his wounds with a potsherd and his wife, God bless her, says, curse God and die. I'm sure she was pretty. (laughs) It's got to be something. And then his friends show up. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Zophar, Bildad, the Shuhite, which is all standard old Baptist joke, who the shortest man in the Bible. Bildad, the Shuhite. Um, 
second shortest man is Nehemiah. Um, these three friends sit with him for a while, mourning with him in his losses, and then they start talking. And there is this back and forth between them. It's a very nicely structured poem. Um, the basic claim of his friends is, you had to have done something wrong, Job, and this wouldn't have happened to you if they hadn't done something wrong. And Job's going, I didn't do nothing wrong. And it gets like that for chapters and chapters. When you get into chapter 30, approximately 32, so 31 chapters of that. Great speeches, great arguments, Job saying, no, that's not the case, really honest. There's this other guy shows up, Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite. And you gotta like Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzzite, because he's, he's one of these young guys. Young guys, he makes a point of saying, I was listening to the old guys talk about stuff, and I was getting ticked, because none of you seem to be able to tell Job where to get off. You got it all wrong, he got it all wrong, nobody seems to know what's going on, and I know I'm young, so I'm gonna hold my, keep my powder dry, but he finally goes off on him, you know, just, okay, you guys don't seem to be understanding. He even comments, this is one who is perfect in knowledge is among you. I mean, just the kind of young guy you wanna smack with something. Now think about that circumstance for a moment. Put yourself in it. Your hard times, for the, for the image, Satan caused, okay? Not just your own poor accounting practices, not merely that the flu that was going around gotcha, not, but no, Satan said, I'm taking a break from my busy time in the Middle East, I'm going to visit Moscow, Idaho, and ruin so-and-so's life. Ruin your life, though in the realms of heaven and the realms of the church, God had written the resume that you had. God had said, you know, I really like you. And I want everyone to know how much I like you. I have that verse right at the top, Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then God later tells Satan the same thing. God writes his resume. So not only are you really good, to the good, to the, but not just the church thinks you're good and you got hidden sins. God knows you're good. Writes your resume. Satan is the one kicking you down a flight of stairs. And then all of your friends that you thought were the closest people to you, your dearest, can't seem to see that obvious truth that Satan is ruining your life and God thinks you're swell. Because they can't imagine that bad a life happening to a great person. All your friends depart from you. And just as when you say, how long, oh Lord, some smart aleck young guy from the bad student side of the church decides to visit and get all up in your face. 
And you start to wonder, what, what are the, this Christian life I'm having, what are the benefits of it? There's a temptation that occurs. It's, it's a really subtle temptation. And Elihu spots it. I want to tell you that Elihu, the young guy, <coughs> he's the last one to speak in the book of Job before God. And God speaks and echoes everything that Elihu says. So you know that Elihu is right. And he has spotted something that people who are good enough for God to write their resume good enough that Satan would want to take down a notch, stumble in this area that when tested, there's a natural assumption that not only do the unrighteous deserve punishment, not the righteous, but the, the righteous deserve success. Job had been having success. But when you're attacked by everybody, when everybody's suggesting the converse, what you might not normally think as your life went on, you are more and more tempted to think. And Elihu said, do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? In other words, he's looking at the circumstance and says, I am so crushed, there is no distinction between me and a sinner getting what he deserves. Say you know somebody really, really bad. Say they're a sociology prof at the University of Idaho. Really bad. Just, they write letters to the editor, they're snarky, they're just enemies of the faith. And then the world collapses on them. They found out that they had plagiarized their PhD thesis and stuff happens. And the Christians try to keep a straight face, smugly rejoicing that the ungodly had had it coming. And it finally, and all of a sudden, the exact same thing happens to you. And you're one of the righteous. Not just on God's team, but one of the righteous. And bad things start happening. Family members die. Economic wealth is lost. Friends turn on you or don't think you're good. How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you and the horse you rode in on. Verse 5. Look at the heavens and see. And behold the clouds which are higher than you. We, the, the subtlety of you in your life, I'm, I'm, I'm going to send you, hopefully send you out today with a degree of uh, a desire to look at yourself and how you design life 
with a little more craft and sophistication than you do. You start to go, okay, I am not just living on the strength of heaven, living on the strength of whoever you are. God is a you know, God is my co-pilot. God is a, a big important part of my life, and I hope God and my service to him recognizes that and brings the thing that Evan or you are trying to create in your own lives together. We start in that, and it's natural for us to be that way. It's natural for us to, you know, pull up our own pants and learn to tie our shoes and not wear a diaper and, and just go on with life like we were in charge and we add the good that religion and God can bring. And you forget that you're standing in the midst of something. You're, you're, you're standing in, on, a, on a stage that's different than you potentially imagine. We forget where we are. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? There's a, this, look at where you stand, what you perform, good or bad, gives nothing to God. He is not what they call a contingent being. He's a necessary being. And you don't add anything to his holiness. You don't add anything to his realm by being good or bad. And the answer that you're supposed to be looking up when, you're, when he's telling you this, you're supposed to be looking at the clouds, looking at the heavens, and thinking for a moment when you stand made small by the infinite, the vortex of infinite perspective, you um, are supposed to think, what is your righteousness for God and what is your unrighteousness for God? You're wondering what the benefits of your religion are to you. And your religion's wondering what benefits are you bringing, but either good or bad, doesn't matter. You are a, you're a null point. God could potentially be a nihilist. Nothing matters, nothing is, nothing, nothing you guys do is needful. It's not even rising to the level of notice. We start to think that our lives are the level of notice. Our lives, we're wondering if God exists. God's wondering if we exist. What do you give to him? Sometimes you have to be brought up short about who and where you are. It says, your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness a son of man. What you've done morally, immorally, is all down here. You've heard me say it before out of Proverbs. The wise man is wise for himself, and the fool, he alone will bear it. Same idea. 
our wickednesses and to get in some sort of attack on heaven. Our righteousness is not some sort of gain for heaven. It doesn't need you. It loves you, but it doesn't need you. It concerns you, your righteousness and your wickedness. But that very, the beginning to raise yourself to a, you might say, an unnatural point of self-absorption. That what you do for the king, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing for, you got to sit down and look at the heavens and go, okay, nothing at all, comparatively. But when we don't think correctly about our place, verse 9, because of a multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. When you don't, when you don't know what you, where you belong, you start to try to arrange the heavens in your prayers. Bring God in when you think God is necessary. Bring God in because obviously there's an injustice here. There's poor people here or there's suffering people there or I'm suffering. Lord, deliver me. Linus, shut the heck up. <laughs> it must be the preaching. It must be the power of the preaching. It's fine. I think, was the, I think the scriptures say, suffer the little children. So we got to suffer. Oh, that's, there's more to that verse, isn't there? Suffer the little children to come unto me. It's a subtle concept that when you don't know your place in the cosmos, that your righteousness and unrighteousness is a damage and a chaos you are doing and a benefit and a blessing that you are doing to yourself and one another. It is not a service or a effective rebellion against God. Never, he'll not, he'll not, he won't break a sweat in damning you. But when we have a misguided appreciation of our standing and the, when we see an injustice, we want to call on God. The multitude of oppressions, the people cry out. And look at Elihu's remark in verse 10. But none says, Where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, and makes us wiser than the birds of the air? Everybody wanting to, because you have your own little designed religious sense of right and wrong, and you know that you're going to pull God in when you want to see the ungodly punished, but you never want to see yourself punished or just things happening to you that you don't like. It's a, it's a, it's a mechanism. You're, you're, you know how the deus ex machina in um, Greek tragedies, the god of the machine would come in and solve the problem at the end of the play. That's what you try to treat God like, like he's some sort of deus ex machina. You can bring him in when you want him, when your plot that you're designing, that you're writing, needs to have a God step in. That's when you're going to bring the God in. He's saying, oh, you would, what do you mean? I don't even think about your concerns like you are thinking about your concerns. What did I do to him by my ungodliness? What did I give to him by my godliness? 
Because, because we view ourselves as little gods, little kingdoms, little satraps in the kingdom of heaven, and I'm going to run the whole thing, run the whole thing, uh, and dress it up in Christian terms, and so that when things get a little bit tough, a little dicey, that's when I hit my knees. And God said, why are none of you saying, where is the God that made me? Where is the God that gives me songs? Where is my God who teaches me? Where is my God that makes me wiser? Everybody is being little, you know, satraps, where you're, where you're running a moral kingdom, rather than running a beautiful one, rather than running one that he is making. When you look at the heavens and you realize that God is um, high and lifted up, you don't get to make this world. And that's the basic break that you need, sort of a psychotic break that you need to make with your reality. You're not making this world. And when I find myself living in the world that God has made, I want to seek the God who made it. And the God who made it is not just you punishing the ungodly in the terms of your, your, your world's morality and rewarding those that are good in the terms of your world's goodness. But you having sought your God across the board, not just regarding the justice for the ungodly and the reward to the righteous, because those are real and true concepts, but you're seeking this God completely because this God's, this God's world you live within. It was what Chuck had said a few weeks ago, I've been thinking about it, when uh, Sam had said he didn't feel the presence of, of God, and you said, you do, you just don't know it. That's where many of us find ourselves. We're designing these little satraps, little kingdoms, with a nice degree of Christian religion, you know, ramping up and doing it and attending services and doing whatever you do, so that you can call on God as the solver of problems when the problems of your system work themselves out. But you live in a world that you can't ignore the presence of God, but nobody asks to see it. Nobody asks, where is God my maker, who gives me songs, who teaches me, who makes me wiser? We're all happy to have the God be the disciplinarian, the rewarder, be it the health and wealth gospel sort of nonsense, or the rewarder of, um, of uh, our, our behavior, or the punisher. And don't worry, God will punish, and God will reward. But when we step into that world, we're all ready to cry out because we're oppressed. We're all ready to cry out when things aren't working out and not how I defined the world. But had I sought him when he was defining the world? That's basically it. Have, do you only pray to God to, to, to bring something, make something right when your definition of the world has fallen apart, like Job's was doing? Or have you gone to God all the time because of the way he has made the world is still not understand by you? You are looking to be taught. You are looking to be wise. Are you making the right requests is the idea. Because, frankly, 
we would like to keep our own understanding of the world. I mean, really. Here we are, North Idaho, a lot of freedoms. We're at a pretty easygoing state. We've got a church building. We, what else we got? Lots of stuff. We pretty much get to run our own thoughts the way we want to. And as long as you show up for services, and maybe donate a little bit, show that you're interested in your community, and maybe get into a theological discussion once or twice with the pastor, then you know you've got, you're allowed to run your life the way you want. But there are wonderful, wise things. There are wonderful songs. There are teachings that you cannot even process. You don't, don't even want them because they're not the way you would write it. Not the way you're making it. We, when you're making it yourself, it'll reflect probably whatever's current in the world. You can tell whoever's trendy out there. The Christians are arguing for, oh, let's not be, let's not be brought down by the man. Obviously, they're just parroting what the world wants them to say. They want to be accepted. They want to have their design of Christianity and they want to cry out to God whenever <coughs> things aren't working out. Verse 12, there they cry out, but he does not answer. Look at reason why. Because of the pride of evil men. Do you realize this is pride? When you have not sought the living God from the time you got up when the times were good, so that you would understand his song, his teaching, his wisdom, his creation. Because you stand in it and under it. The God of the machine solves everything in your narrative. Not just when your justice needs to be applied. When the conflicts or the chaos of your narrative starts to ruin your life. That's when you call on God? That's a pride that says, I've been running it myself. I need you here and nowhere else, O oh Lord. And then he doesn't show up. Does he? Never. Rarely. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty hear it. And not only that, not only that. Look at this. Verse 14. How much less... God, God doesn't listen to people like that, basically. People who've got their own world, a certain amount of religion, and cry to God when things are bad enough and they need the God to come in and fix it. Because his world is everything you live and breathe in. For in him we live, move, and have our being. Where was I looking for God in that? Because it's pride if I don't. God doesn't listen to that kind of empty cry, even more so when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and you are waiting for him. I don't know how many people I've heard say, well, I pray, I ask God to show himself to me, and I just... I asked him to come through, my Aunt Betty was dying of cancer, and I asked him. I went to him, I prayed real hard. Then I waited, and she died. When you say you do not see him, that you've asked him, that you're waiting for him, 
in your world, in that world, when that is what you went to God for, the presumption is stunning. It, you're, I'm surprised God just doesn't destroy you with a lightning bolt at that moment. I've had enough. Because think of the, you know, how crass that is. That you, designing your life, thinking somehow that all of this and the world you breathe, the three dimensions you exist in, and all that was created is just sort of a default backdrop for your great decisions regarding your life. It's just stage management. It's just somebody who's paid very little, probably minimum wage, unless they're unionized, and they have painted this backdrop for you to live your grand life in front of, that you are writing that story, and you have God as part of that, and I'm going to go to him when I have justice issues that need to be dealt with. Why aren't you looking for him who made you? Why aren't you looking for him who gives you that beauty and understanding of life all the time? Because you only need God as a judge and executioner of your will. And you don't really need him to understand your world, do you? You got that all worked out? You got that philosophy uh, that you picked up from that search professor? How much less will he hear you when you get presumptuous about it? That you think you can step into that world and then fault him for not... Job's getting to the point where he's faulting God. He's not defending God. Job wasn't bad, and he knew he wasn't bad. And so when bad started to happen, he was waiting for God to rectify the situation, and God didn't. And now, because his anger does not punish, and he does not greatly heed transgression, God didn't come through. Job prayed. I don't see him. I'll leave my case there. I'm waiting. And because God doesn't seem to zap what needs to be zapped, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Have you ever been tempted to raise your fist towards heaven because God didn't do what you thought it was sort of part of the contract that he must do? You had worked something out in your life. God does not listen to proud people. Does that? Empty cries, pride of men, I will not regard it, you don't... You ever hear, what was it in the Lord's Prayer, the Sermon on the Mount? It says, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. If you do not forgive, you know how many people who believe that Jesus forgives you of your sins, they haven't worked out their own forgiveness of others, and so they just run around assuming that they're forgiven, and they're not, because they have not forgiven it says that clearly. If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Well, the concept there is the same. If you don't understand that this is God's world, and you had not lived in it as if it were God's world, and God's narrative, and God's understanding, 
that you had cried out for this God when it was just for thought, when it was just for wisdom, when it was just for the beauty, when it was just for you standing in front of your maker as a created being to run your life by his creation, that when you call on him, you're calling on him as a proud man who did not understand that you lived in a world that God had made. And now you want him to show up? God says, no. Thank you, no. I do not regard it. It's an empty cry. And then you get all huffy and wear your pants up really high and say, where is my God? There is no God. I asked him and he didn't answer my prayer. How much less will you think God's, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't know that you were going to get annoyed with me. You ever meet somebody who is almost anti-God? They might be claiming to be Christians, but they're almost anti-God because God doesn't answer their prayers. Again, I'm like, well, that proves something now, didn't it? Your presumption. God must have been right. Why would he answer your, your kind of prayers? You're a rotten person. You open your mouth with empty talk. You have a righteous wrath. You want it done. You want it done now, oh God. Words without knowledge. So you go back. You go back to what will stop this from being the case. Start to say, where is my maker? What is his connection to this beauty? The songs in the night. What? The things that I just thought were parts of my creativity. What's, the, what's God's understanding of the universe? Not when I need it, but me realizing that I need it all the time. I need to have someone's thoughts. They might as well be God's. I need them to be wise thoughts. These are things that were far higher than the beast in, and God is there for you. Have you believed that more about your life should be designed by the University of Idaho, a state university, than the living God? Have you spent more time in classes provided by the University of Idaho, a state university, than in the pursuit of the things of God? Now, I went to the University of Idaho, a state university, and graduated with a lower grade point than my lovely wife. I always have to mention that. It's one of the rules. You have to seek these things of him so that when I do approach him for justice, it is not the justice of the proud young governor of my own life that just needs him to implement my righteous demands. I am one of God's people. And that he wants to protect, wants to reward. Job is not right at the end of the book. God chews him out at the end of the book. Because he has not sought God. He wanted God to seek him. He wanted God to make his life right. He had been good. Why was he getting hurt? God, you've got to step in and do something about this. He didn't stop and go, 
God, this is your universe. I want to understand it more. And consequently, empty talk. Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself. Your righteousness, a son of man. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for the world that stands around us unexamined. Make it a question for us. Make it the kind of question that we will pursue your understanding, your creation, your world as you have made it in every aspect of its making so that we would become your servants to your story, your servants to your way, and so that when we do that which is good, when we oppose that which is evil, there's a greater chance that our concerns are echoed in your heavens. We thank you for it all. In your son's name we pray. Amen.